from WHQR Public Media, this is the Newsroom. Welcome, I'm Ben Schachman. On this episode, WECT investigative reporter Michael Pratz joins us for a deep dive into the Wilmington Crime Lab. The lab was run out of the Wilmington Police Department headquarters for 10 years, until the Sheriff's Office took over about three years ago. A recently filed lawsuit offers a new explanation for why that happened, involving allegations of missing heroin, an attempt to protect hundreds of drug cases, and a culture of gender bias at the police department. But first, WHQR's Rachel Keith sits down with Dr. Aswani Valetti, who recently took over as Chancellor of UNCW. Valetti takes the reins from Jose Sartorelli, whose retirement took effect earlier this summer. He now leads a university with renowned faculty and research facilities that's also facing serious challenges from diversity to finances. Dr. Aswani Valetti, thank you so much for being with us today on the newsroom. In your chancellor announcement speech mm-hmm. and at your first board of trustees meeting, mm-hmm. you tell your story of coming to this country mm-hmm. and what it means to you. Mm-hmm. So why is this so important for you to tell the community this? And I was also interested in knowing why you made the decision to come to America to study. Yeah, let me start with the last point. Education in the U.S. is by far the best in the world. While I knew that, or at least I thought I knew at that time, it reinforced it in my mind today. After serving in the higher ed sector for 32 plus years, working with faculty, staff, and academicians all over the world, it reinforced the idea that education in the U.S. is by far the best in the world. And I'm privileged and honored and humbled to have those experiences. I always tell people that education is personal for me because it changed my life, it changed the trajectory of my family. I cannot think of a better investment in any sector, anybody other than education because it really changes the trajectories of families. Um, you've often heard that the, a good predictor of success is a zip code. Zip code doesn't have to be the destination and I'm a proof of that. Right? As I said, I grew up in a, uh, a very humble um, a family with um, a one-room house, as I used to call it. Um, but I had great mentors. I had a uh, great family um, uh, who encouraged me and uh, supported me as I went through my education. I was fortunate enough to get uh, have great mentors, great education that enabled me to come to the United States. While I had great education at uh, William & Mary, uh, it is beyond the classroom education. I had the chance to meet with um, students from across the country and across the globe. Uh, in fact, I met my wife at uh, graduate school. The opportunities, the the mentors, uh, the doors they were able to open, the uh, pathways that made me think of um, uh, changed my life. I want to make sure every Seahawk that comes through UNCW have opportunities that are similar to mine and those that made a difference in my life. And that's the reason education is so personal to me. And that's the reason I tell the story, saying that if me, being a first-generation student coming from a third-world country, I can make it. You hit the genetic lottery and you're born in in the United States that have unlimited potential, great opportunities, right? It's really the, 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 the potential is limitless. So education changes lives, and that's what I hope to do for students. So it's the gateway for you to mm-hmm. a better life. Mm-hmm. I wanted to start with your first meeting at the mm-hmm. Board of Trustees. Mm-hmm. And you presented, you had a listening tour, it mm-hmm. sounds like, for the past month that mm-hmm. you've been on the job. Yeah. And you spoke with a lot of constituent groups. Mm-hmm. I have students, faculty and staff, elected officials, alumni, business leaders, and educational partners. Mm-hmm. And those are pretty diverse constituencies. Mm-hmm. And so how would you handle 
conflict between them because they do represent various interests. Mm -hmm. And I remember you saying that it's your responsibility to listen to everyone, Mm -hmm. but you're going to do what's in the best interest of the students. Yeah. And, And you use the word perspective, right? And every individual's perspective is influenced by their experience and the information they have, right? It is their perspective. Um, I don't necessarily think that they're in conflict with each other. Uh, it is a perspective coming from, from their uh, point of view. We all agree that there is one and only one reason why any one of us are at UNCW, and that is for the students, not the other way around. So while our approaches might be different, our goal is the same. Right, how we get there, how we provide meaningful educational experiences for the students. We all agree that that is the reason why we're all here, and we want to make sure we get good students, give them great experiences, provide them opportunities to be successful in their life and have a fulfilling career. Right? How we get there is what we might be talking about. And so it is critical for me to consider the perspectives of various constituents. Um, most of the times we agree, sometimes we have a different perspective. But the goal is to make sure that we don't lose track of why we are here. It's for the students. And my job is to make sure I communicate the why behind the what. What we're doing is you know, student success, providing students with uh, meaningful educational opportunities. When it looks like I have a different perspective to somebody else, I owe it to the individual to tell them the why behind the what. Right? These are the reasons I've considered multiple perspectives, and this is the decision I'm making for this reason. Oftentimes, we see where the other person is coming from, okay, makes sense. Uh, Sometimes you might say, I might disagree with you, but I understand why you're doing it, and I think that is critical. Yeah, you said you wanted to always give your rationale for any of your decisions. Yeah. Yeah. And two announcements you made at this Board of Trustees meeting on mm-hmm. July 29th, your first one, mm-hmm. you said that you're looking into campus town halls and yes. you're also, mm-hmm. once you finish your strategic plan in the spring, that yep. you're going to be creating these public dashboards yes. so the community can track your progress, the mm-hmm. university's progress mm-hmm. on these. Mm-hmm. So could you describe how you'll, you'll implement these coming up? A strategic plan is something that we want to take the longer-term view, right, not a tactical perspective, tactical view. Uh, and that for that reason, I wanted, I've, I've talked to the faculty, staff, and students, and the trustees saying, let's have a 10-year view of what UNCW will be down the road, right? It takes a little bit of time to implement certain uh, strategies, put some initiatives in place, right? But at the same time, you want to make sure people buy into why we are doing certain things. And that was the rationale for me to have this listening tours, to talk to individuals, look at their hopes, dreams, and aspirations, and and how can we realize those things. And strategic plans should also uh, have broad participation. It should be transparent. It should be measurable. Um, and you know, end of the day, we also had to be realistic in terms of what we can do. Um, so what I say about the strategic plan is, in my naive mind, it's got uh, five components. Right. In other words, strategic plan has to say, uh, has to um, inform what UNCW will be. In other words, who do we want to be when we grow up? And the, the next point is, how do we get there? And the next point is, how do we know we're getting there? And that's where the metrics and dashboards, et cetera, come in place. And then, of course, the last two points are the more realistic points. How much is it going to cost, and where is the money coming from? That really provides a, a dose of reality. Unless you align the resources with the priorities and goals, 
I'm afraid that will be a, a, a very nice brochure and a very nice website. Um, having public dashboards also holds me accountable and holds the collective as an institution accountable. In other words, if we say this is the progress we hope to make in increments over the next 10 years or the whatever the time frame is for that particular priority or goal, we want to make sure that we're making progress. Right? If you're not making progress, you want to make sure we're making necessary adjustments to make progress for those goals. Uh, the public dashboards are A, to communicate to individuals you know, the progress they're making, making and um, are we going in the right direction? Are mm -hmm. we going at the right pace? And B, it's also an accountability thing. I'm very much into account accountability. That holds me accountable, that holds the institution accountable. You made a point that a lot of the university money is taxpayer money. Indeed. So yeah, they deserve to know Absolutely. what that is. Mm -hmm. And are you planning for your first town hall soon, in a couple months? Or? Yeah, in fact, actually, I'm meeting with the strategic planning um, uh, steering committee this afternoon. To They gave me their initial thoughts. Uh, over the last year, under um, Chancellor Sauterali's leadership, they implemented this uh, strategic planning um, uh, committee. And the executive committee held a lot of um, uh, feedback sessions, one-on-one uh, -on -one from various campus constituents. So there are some broad brushstrokes, but I want to make sure everybody hears what others said. And for example, when somebody talks to me about uh, what should UNCW be doing or what is this program about, I might have an answer and a perspective, and that might be a little different than yours. Uh, when you have uh, 18,000 students and uh, no, 2,000, 3,000 employees, uh, they all have a different perspective. I want to make sure that we are coming up with common themes and then I want to make sure that it's vetted in town hall meetings, et cetera. And obviously, when you start off with um, asking a lot of individuals for their feedback, you get a lot of feedback, right? And there are a lot of good ideas. And we may not be able to implement all the good ideas. And therefore, the town hall sessions will enable uh, UNCW to see what are, of all these good ideas, what are some great ideas? And where do we need to focus on initially and then make progress on those things? So I'm hoping through several iterations and several town hall meetings, we'll try to coalesce around some ideas that are really going to move the needle in terms of where UNCW will be. And, and also mentioned that uh, meeting that UNCW is located in this part of North Carolina to meet the regional economic needs and to support this region. Right? So UNCW's responsibilities, in addition to uh, providing great education for students and creating engaged citizens, we also had to make sure we meet in the region's needs. Right? This region is growing at a much faster rate than the rest of the state. Uh, the, the type of economy is changing. It's more of a knowledge-based economy, more high-tech. Are we preparing students to have the skill sets that the employers and the industry is looking for? Right? Um, Academia is built for the long, long term. It's a lot more deliberate, uh, whereas the real world changes at a much faster rate. So we want to make sure that the, the skill sets that the students are getting at UNCW and the uh, curriculum they're getting aligns with the industry's needs. Right? And so that dictates uh, that I work with uh, faculty, staff, and students to make sure we are making appropriate curricular changes or enhancements as necessary to meet the, the growing needs of this region and the industry. Right? And also, we had to ensure that there is a clear sideline between the curriculum and the career. Um, as a student, they need to know why they're taking that, that particular class and the concepts and principles they're learning and how it applies to solving real-world problems. Right? So that's one thing. And second thing is there is nothing to replace 
uh, a real world experience. Mm -hmm. And it is critical uh, to bring in experts from the field, whatever the field happens to be, the practitioners out in the field, into the classroom to provide those um, uh, real world settings and, and give the students an idea in collaboration with faculty and staff how to translate the concepts and principles that take the learning in a classroom setting to solving real world problems, right? I also want to emphasize that we are part of this community. UNCW is part of this community, right? So we need to have very close relationships with the community, be it um, general public, be it K through 12, be it um, not-for-profit sector, business leaders, uh, legislative leaders, et cetera, to make sure we are in, this, we are in sync uh, with the growing re region's needs. Mm -hmm. and, and for that reason, the collaboration is very, very critical. And for that reason, I plan to seek the community input as well into how UNCW strategic planning should look like and how we can serve this region in the long term. You presented an interesting challenge at this last trustee meeting mm -hmm. that the UNC system has revised their funding formulas. Mm -hmm. And from the data you presented, it looks like a lot of masters and PhDs in the humanities are gonna cost the university more to offer. Mm -hmm. and. In your presentation, you said you'll have to evaluate the university's current student profile in terms mm -hmm. of affecting future revenue streams and mm -hmm. how that profile mm -hmm. might need to change. And then you also said at this meeting that at the micro level, the college is not a business, mm -hmm. the university is not a business. But at the macro level, mm -hmm. we do have to look at these types of things. So could you comment on, on this? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let me start with the last point. We don't necessarily teach a class uh, based on whether the class generates enough revenue or not, right? We want to make sure we are creating a well-rounded uh, student who is going to be an informed citizen, right? In other words, sometimes you have to eat broccoli, right? Broccoli is good for you. Um, so it's not necessarily that you know, students want to take this and that's what they're going to get, or faculty think this is what the students need and that's what they're going to get, right? It's a combination of the student interest, the, the public demand, the faculty staff expertise. It's a collective that influences the curriculum and the learning outcomes for the student. So while some things do cost more and some things do cost less, I don't necessarily want to make decisions solely based on cost-benefit analyses measured in terms of dollars and cents for a particular class. That's what I mean when I say it is not a business at the micro scale. In other words, uh, perhaps um, a laboratory might cost a little more than the, the dollars you get from the students and or the legislature, but those are the skill sets that the students need. And some disciplines might cost less, some disciplines might cost more, but collectively we had to make sure that the resources we are provided either through tuition dollars or the taxpayers' dollars um, go towards providing the students a holistic educational experience that includes academics, that includes um, cultural activities, that includes the athletic activities. Of course, these are all funded by student fees, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So uh, what I mean that it is a business at the macro scale, we had to make sure that we have a finite part of money that are funded by the taxpayers' dollars for the most part, and we are putting it to good use to make sure that the students are getting a holistic collegiate experience. So that's what I mean. Okay, thank you. And one of the five imperatives of the university is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And mm -hmm. in reference to this, you said we have to offer opportunities for every individual to succeed. Mm -hmm. Could you be more specific on some of these opportunities? And yep. we're also curious if the work of the Renewal and Change Accountability Committee will continue in the future. Absolutely. I mentioned it in my interview, et cetera. Um, diversity and diverse perspectives are critical for making an informed decision. 
right? And whether it happens to be in the business world, whether it happens to be in boardrooms or, or um, uh, public settings like uh, UNCW, it's the multiple perspectives informed by people's experiences. That's what results in a, uh, in a better decision, right? Um, the demographics of the nation are changing. The, while the student body looks a little different relative to the rest of the, the country and rest of this region, we had to make sure that we're also um, providing opportunities for the institution to look a little similar to whatever is happening in the country and in this region in particular. Because also role models are important, right? Sometimes students want to see people that look like them, have similar experiences that can relate to them and empathize with them. And my kids have better opportunities because the education, the opportunities I have, and therefore uh, what I was able to provide for them. Sometimes they know what is possible. But there might be other individuals or other children that don't necessarily have the same opportunities like my children, right? They might not be aware of what is possible. But that is what education does. And so that's what I hope to provide opportunities for everybody, regardless of who they are, because uh, then they know what is possible, then they can take steps to go in that particular direction. Um, UNCW has made great stride in terms of uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, including providing scholarships, uh, creating um, uh, faculty fellows, creating uh, bridge programs and uh, coastal routes programs where uh, students come to the campus ahead of time, engage in educational opportunities that um, might uh, help remediate any, um, any need they might have. Uh, and the idea is to make sure that every individual that walks through uh, walks to UNCW or through the proverbial prover gates has similar opportunities like anybody else. And that means providing um, opportunities um, or ideas or resources to some individuals so that they can get ahead. And Danielle Roseborough, she mm -hmm. presented last July. I was at that meeting, yep. too, and now she's your chief mm -hmm. um, diversity, diversity officer. Yes, mm -hmm. diversity officer. And I think that the student population, or right, right now, it seems around black populations around 6%, and the mm -hmm. faculty's around 4%. And they mm -hmm. were saying that they want to be, the university wants to be strategic yep. in growing those numbers. Mm -hmm. And there was a discussion last summer of, quality versus representation, but all mm -hmm. students who come to the university would be of quality. But there is kind of a purposeful, you know, goal to mm -hmm. increase that representation. Absolutely. With the students, et cetera, I think uh, we had to do a better job to ensure that we're reaching out to the right areas, right schools, to make sure the students are aware of the opportunities that UNCW provides to them. Right. When it comes to faculty and staff, um, I, I would say we are doing a pretty good job in terms of reaching out. End of the day, we want to make sure that we put the best individuals in front of students, right? It is not a matter of just checking the box. But having said that, we had to ensure that we are doing everything possible to make sure these opportunities are available for individuals we like to attract, uh, in this case, um, individuals with diverse backgrounds. Sometimes it's not that there aren't enough uh, divorce candidates in the pool, but perhaps we haven't done a good enough job to make sure that the individuals are aware of the job. Or alternatively, sometimes we did try those, uh, uh, those kind of strategies, but others had better opportunity. Right? I cannot blame them for taking those opportunities. Sure. I would do the same thing. So I think it's a combination of effort and making sure that we are putting the best um, faculty and staff in front of students because that's what they deserve. They deserve the best individual providing with the 
the, the best education experience that they deserve and what we promise. So I think uh, working with uh, Dr. Roseboro and the rest of the campus community, I want to make sure we are doing everything possible uh, to make sure that um, we attract good students and at the same time um, put great uh, faculty and staff in front of them to provide those meaningful educational experiences. And you joked about your bias being on marine science because you were a professor of this and you were the former executive director of that program. But how do you see UNCW's researchers contributing mm-hmm. to the knowledge on climate change mm-hmm. and finding ways to build more resilient communities in the face of rising sea levels and a warming planet? Right, right. I was, I was only half joking uh, because yeah. I know a little more about that, uh, that discipline than uh, other disciplines. Uh, being a marine scientist myself, uh, but that was only a half joke because yeah. uh, UNCW does have a phenomenal marine science program. Um, it is amazing to see the progress UNCW has made, um, let's say, in the past uh, 20, 25 years, right, in terms of the the, the quality, the depth of programs, uh, um, et cetera. Uh, we started off with a very, very strong marine biology program. Uh, we were a fantastic program for marine biology at the undergraduate level. We started adding programs at the doctoral level. We had a PhD in marine biology. And subsequent to that, we've added uh, programs in geology, uh, physical oceanography. Um, some of the departments evolved through that process, earth and ocean sciences, physics and physical oceanography. And we've also um, added a lot of uh, faculty members to, to ensure that we have expertise precisely in the areas that you talked about. Um, coastal restoration, for example. Uh, uh, sea level rise, um, resources from the sea, uh, whether it happens to be minerals or whether it happens to be drugs uh, from living organisms, et cetera. Uh, we've added uh, policy uh, folks with uh, policy background. We've added folks in modeling background. Right now, I can say that UNCW really rivals any school in the nation as far as the, the depth of marine science and the breadth of marine science goes. We have um, in excess of uh, 100, 150 faculty members in some discipline of marine science, whether it happens to be um, biology, chemistry, physics, geology, mathematical modeling, policy, so on and so forth. And all these disciplines have tentacles, whether it happens to be communication, whether it happens to be business, health sciences, and so on and so forth. So um, I, I, I truly believe that UNCW can be a national model in integrating teaching, service, research, that translates to um, translational research or, or commercializable products that is going to influence your life and my life. While I might be biased because I'm a marine scientist, I, I really believe that UNCW has uh, phenomenal expertise in, um, in marine science area. And not to mention that we have a gem in the Center for Marine Science uh, right on Mason Morrow Sound. Um, so I think the proximity to the water, the vessels, uh, the expert faculty, staff, and student expertise we have uh, combined with the phenomenal support we get from um, uh, the state legislature that enables us to be a national model. And Dr. Valetti, before you, we end today, what would you like the public to know about your vision or your leadership of the university? What would you like to leave our listeners with? Yeah, my focus is going to be, uh, number one, uh, it is going to be student-centered. Every decision I make has to revolve around that, uh, the four things like I mentioned. Is it good for the students? Is it good for faculty and staff that are life of the institution? Uh, is this going to move the institution forward? And is it good, to, good for this region and the state? Right. Um, uh, so first and foremost, it is student-centered nature. And second thing is I am uh, plain spoken. I am um, transparent. Um, I hold myself accountable. I want you to hold me accountable. 
I am very collaborative in nature, whether it happens to be collaborating with uh, community leaders right here in Wilmington in this region or whether it is collaborating with um, fellow chancellors uh, in the UNC system. I think it's the collective that adds strength and helps the sons and daughters of North Carolina through the UNC system. Um, and I also want to be very focused in making sure that, of course, students are getting a great education, but also making sure that we are collaborating with the community and meeting this region's needs. Okay. UNCW Chancellor Dr. Aswani Valetti, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay. Well, we've got to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with WECT investigative reporter Michael Pratz to dig into a lawsuit against top law enforcement officials in the New Hanover County region. I'm Ben Schockman, and you're listening to The Newsroom from WHQR. Stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Schockman. Over the last month, WECT investigative reporter Michael Pratz and I have been covering a lawsuit filed by Bethany Pridgen. That's the former director of the Wilmington Police Department Crime Lab. It's a suit filed against Sheriff Ed McMahon. The lawsuit has recently been amended to include District Attorney Ben David, Wilmington Police Chief Donnie Williams, Assistant Chief David Euler, and the city of Wilmington itself. Now, the lawsuit is complicated, and we'll get into some of those complicated points, but a lot of it comes down to a question. What happened to the Wilmington Crime Lab? To help answer that question, or at least to break down the answer offered by allegations in this lawsuit, is WECT investigative reporter Michael Pratz. So, Pratz, thanks for being here. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. So I want to go back in time a little bit to talk about when we first started looking at the Wilmington Crime Lab. Uh, we had reported on it here and there, um, you know, back since at least 2016. Mm -hmm. The crime lab had been around for a long time, but mostly it was notable for funding struggles. It sort of was limping year to year, grant to grant. Yeah, it was definitely uh, definitely floundering, much like other uh, governmental entities we've seen um, that provide services, which, again, these are services. So they do cost uh, they typically end up costing more money. Um, they don't necessarily bring it in, but you have to look at the value of these efforts. We've talked about this in the past, too, which is when you have, let's say, a drug, uh, drugs being tested, you send them off to the state crime lab. Well, if it is, if it is indeed some sort of drugs, you get a uh, quicker result back by having a local crime lab, which means you can get your speedy trial as you are promised. Um, a lot of these people, you know, for, for instance, when New Hanover County Sheriff's Office made what they called the largest bust of fentanyl, which turned out to be uh, baby formula, had they, you know, had they had to send this off to um, to Raleigh to be tested, you know, I, I assume they can expedite things, but I'm sure a lot of people ask for uh, for testing to be expedited. Uh, by doing that at a local crime lab, you can figure that out very quickly. Let these people out of jail for their baby formula. Exactly. Yeah, and so. The idea had always been, um, or at least it was presented this way, the idea had always been to set up the Wilmington Crime Lab as a pilot program in the hopes that someone would eventually take over the funding stream, whether that could be through the state and make this a satellite lab or some other arrangement. But year after year after year, it never really happened. Yeah. So we get to the uh, early parts of 2019. This is January, late January, February of 2019. 
And we get this press release. We've talked about this before, but we get a press release uh, from Ben David and the Wilmington Police Department pretty much at the same time saying that a chemist at the lab, a forensic chemist, uh, William Peltzer, had been fired for... (laughs) What Ben David called untruthfulness. Right, right. And without getting too in the weeds, he basically was not calibrating or documenting the calibration of the high-tech machinery in the crime lab. So we were told. So we were told. And, you know, this was, you know, it's a little unusual because usually terminations, although those termination letters are public, they're, they're usually not proactive. Governments aren't usually proactive about this stuff. If sure. you ask, they'll tell you. But um, And that was kind of, you know, the DA's office at the time, again, February 2019, said, we're evaluating this along with WPD to say how many cases are affected. And then we really didn't hear anything else about it. Flash forward to, I believe, April of 2019, and we get, a, uh, we get an email from the police department saying, hey, we're having a joint conference with the sheriff's office today about the crime lab. Right. So we head on down to the Wilmington Police Department, and we're told that the crime lab is being transferred over to the sheriff's office which is a little awkward because the crime lab is physically in the Best Street Wilmington Police Department headquarters. Right. But now the county is going to be operating it. And we ask sort of the natural questions, okay, when will this happen? Will you keep the employees? And they said, yeah, you know, it's going to be a process. We hope to start at the beginning of the fiscal year. All the employees will be moved over. That's what uh, Sheriff Ed McMahon said. Like, look, hey, they've got to reapply because the county has rules. But basically, this isn't a problem with anyone in the lab except for William Peltzer, who was fired at this point. Right. But, you know, it's all about funding. And the county will be able to provide more consistent funding, and then the crime level will be able to keep doing what it's doing. And we sort of said, yeah, I feel like we're missing something here. Mm -hmm. But that was the story. And we, you know, there doesn't seem to be anything else. And over the next year, we did a couple of follow-up stories Mm -hmm. um, that seemed to indicate that this was less well thought out than we might have originally imagined. Sure. One was the issue of this, um, it was about a $160,000 five-year lease Mm -hmm. for a piece of equipment. I believe it was a gas chromatograph. So it's a five-year lease, and it was improved in December of 2018. Mm -hmm. This is about a month before William Peltzer was fired and about five months before the crime lab was transferred. A five-year lease, over $100,000, that a year later, the city was still stuck paying these these, uh, lease payments. Right. And there was the fact that a full year later... The crime lab, now under the sheriff's office management, uh, had a budget of about $600,000 a year. And in that year, it had done about $1,000 mm-hmm. worth of work, about 20 blood alcohol content tests. Right. And no drug tests because um, they had been, uh, Chief Evangelist and Sheriff McMahon had been wrong about this idea that you could just change management and keep running. Right. You have to get accreditation all over again Yeah. for the lab itself and the employees and there was a lot of other factors. You know, the pandemic mm-hmm. drastically reduced the number of drunk driving cases because there were no bars to go and get drunk at. Right. You know, a year, a year and a half later, the crime lab was still sort of limping behind. They were making progress, but it just seemed like this had been presented as, you know, this is going to be a relatively smooth and easy transition. And at least from what we could report on it, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. The one missing piece seemed to be that, you know, some of the original employees had moved over. But the crime lab director who had had run this lab, who had actually created this lab Mm -hmm. and secured a lot of the grant funding over the decade it ran under WPD, was not transferred. Yeah, and And that's kind of where this story picks up at, which is uh, Bethany Pridgen. That's that's basically what she goes by. Uh, I I don't know her exact last name. Uh, It's uh, Bethany Pridgen McGillivray. 
Okay, so uh, we um, will be referring to it as Bethany Pridgen, but if uh, if you look at the lawsuit, uh, it does have a, another last name. I'm not sure if that is a uh, maiden name a ma- or a hyphenated that's name. That's her husband's name, I believe. Gotcha. So it is a hyphenated name, but uh, when she was with the crime lab, I believe it was Bethany Pridgen at that time. So we didn't really know much about this, as you said. We, we got what we got with the uh, press releases and picking up a few things that something was amiss when it comes to what happened with the crime lab, why the, why they didn't know that you can't just all of a sudden say, oh, this is now the new Hanover County Sheriff's crime lab. They kind of alluded to, I, I'm not sure it was ever directly said as simple as this, but it was alluded to that this was kind of a plan that had been in the works that uh, was something that was fairly inevitable, but all of these pieces, like the renting of that uh, that piece of equipment, the the lease for that, by the city of Wilmington, that all of a sudden they're stuck with, um, and not knowing. You would think that if you were going to transfer a complete new lab to your department, you would at least do the background to make sure that that is something you can just easily make that switch. And if you can't roll it out slowly, so the crime lab is still being used, and that doesn't appear to have happened. So the idea that this was a long-term planned process that just happened to coincide with the firing of William Peltzer uh, doesn't necessarily, I I won't say it's not true because I wasn't in these discussions, um, but it does appear that some homework was not at least done here. And where we're kind of picking up, we talked about this a couple weeks ago and reported on it back in uh, June, I believe. In May of May 21st of 22, I believe, is the official filing. Bethany Pridgen, the former crime lab director, filed a lawsuit in New Hanover County Superior Court naming Sheriff Ed McMahon, New Hanover County Sheriff, as a defendant in this and basically was suing him for not hiring her. That's a very, uh, very basic explanation of what this lawsuit was. Well, that revealed a lot of new information to us as well, including some things we did not know that we kind of suspected, and I had heard through the grapevines, through sources at the police department who couldn't go on record, that William Peltzer was actually suspected of stealing drugs from the crime lab. It wasn't just mistruths and failing to uh, calibrate a mass spectrometer. It was, you know, there had been missing bindles of heroin. Uh, They couldn't prove it, that it was was William Peltzer, um, unless through the IA investigation they, they might have, but they never announced anything like that when they held this press conference. So it definitely seems like They were trying to get in front of the possible leaks that might come out and try and make this and downplay it as far as the seriousness goes, really try to downplay what happened. And we saw that part of this uh, part of this, you know, game plan could have been because once you have these sort of issues, you are going to obviously and this happened, you're going to have people who have been convicted and say they were wrongly convicted because of the crime lab, uh, possibly not calibrating the equipment correctly, or not possibly, they they were not cr- uh, calibrating, at least William Peltzer was not. Um, and if it would have came out that he was stealing these drugs too, you could have the question as to whether or not he was replacing them with 
with other drugs. It just it basically breaks that chain of evidence. So there becomes a lot more scrutiny on any cases that he had even tangentially been related to. So over the, I believe it was four or five years that Peltzer worked there, he touched about, we don't know for sure, but we've heard, you know, five, 600 cases. You know, a mm. lot of these could have been he had one part of a larger chain of sure. But he touched hundreds of cases. Right. And that's a lot of work for the DA's office. We're talking about people who have already been, in some cases, you know, already been tried, convicted, done in their jail. time, yeah. gone back out. So we're talking about potentially retrials, lawsuits, lawsuits, a lot of time, a lot of energy, a chaos in mm-hmm. the court system. And what Pridgen alleges is that the specter of all of this made U.S. attorneys in the Eastern District of North Carolina and prosecutors under Ben David's office say, whoa, this could be really problematic. And I've got to put a pin in the story just for a moment because we need to take a break. But when we come back, we're going to talk about what Pridgen alleges happened next to try and deal with this issue. You're listening to The Newsroom from WHQR Public Media. Stay with us. Ben Shockman here with Michael Pratz, investigative reporter for WECT. We're talking about a lawsuit filed against Sheriff Ed McMahon by Bethany Pridgen, who for 10 years was the director of the Wilmington Police Department Crime Lab until it was transferred to the management of the sheriff's office, but Pridgen didn't get to keep her job. The reason, she alleges, is that she publicly testified about issues at the crime lab, including missing heroin this testimony could provide a real problem for prosecutors, according to Pridgen. So Pridgen alleges that they set out to fix this. She calls it sanitizing. Mm-hmm. And the idea here was, okay, well, there's definitely evidence that he didn't calibrate stuff. Let's just cop to that. Right. And it was about a year after the crime lab was transferred that we checked in with the DA's office about these cases. They told us there were nine where there was definitely errors with calibration and an unspecified number of other cases where there were less serious issues. And they told us they had reviewed these with WPD and shared them with whoever the defense counsel in those cases had been and that none of them had been dismissed or overturned or even really challenged. Um, And we didn't get an exact number of those cases again, but we're guessing it was dozens. Right. But the difference between hundreds of cases and dozens of cases was clearly, according to Pridgen's lawsuit, what was at stake here. And this pressure seems to have come from a meeting where district attorneys, uh, United States attorneys, and top uh, WPD staff all met together. And according to Pridgen, former Chief Ralph Evangelos made the suggestion, let's just rip the Band-Aid off Mm -hmm. and throw out all of these cases. And that was quickly shot down. So that was kind of the gist of the first lawsuit was saying that there had been this situation where Bethany Pridgen was called to testify because Peltzer had been fired. Mm-hmm. So as his supervisor, she had stepped in to testify. Because he had been fired and there had been this public statement, the defense attorney in the case, Tom Goolsby, basically pursued a line of questioning about the irregularities. I have no idea if Goolsby had knowledge beyond what was in the press release. But in his line of questioning, he got Pridgen to answer. And, of course, she was answering truthfully. She's under oath, so she has to. Mm -hmm. And there were no objections from the district attorney. Basically said, did you have other concerns? And she said, yes. What were those concerns? Missing drugs. And that's how this sort of all came out. But no one really caught on to this. This was a low-level 
case. We've talked about this before. It was the case of a pot brownie. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, you know, Bratz and I don't cover every pot brownie arrest. We do not. Would that we could. But basically this ended up, she's now going to be the first witness that any defense attorney wants to call. Right. And so that's the sort of the, the second part of her initial lawsuit filing was that because she'd become persona non grata by, according to her, testifying honestly under oath. Right. The whole climate of law enforcement in New Hanover County turned against her. Right. So she says basically she was not hired eventually when uh, when she did apply for the New Hanover County Sheriff's Office job. Again, this is all allegations in the lawsuit. We are not saying this is fact based because we don't have the proof of this. But this is what Bethany Pridgen is saying, that that's where this lawsuit comes from. Now, it's worth pointing out the sheriff's office does have the right to hire and fire people at will. The sheriff is elected by the people, and he has a lot more power, uh, as we've talked about before. If he doesn't like your haircut, he can fire you. If you are not on his team politically, basically, if you don't support him politically, he has the right to fire you for that. So that is something that there is a lot of leeway given to a sheriff's office. And basically, they're saying, we didn't hire because we don't need a reason. Now, Bridget has since expanded her lawsuit. Yeah. Where she's also suing uh, the city of Wilmington, Ben David, and current police chief Donnie Williams, and assistant chief uh, David Euler mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons. And I will say one of this uh, is sort of construed around the idea that she was effectively fired from the city of Wilmington. Uh, right. Now, she was never actually fired, just to be clear. But the fact that Wilmington transferred the lab over to the county and she didn't get the job uh, she did lose her job. So she's arguing that this is kind of a... Wrongful termination. For legal purposes, yeah. Right. And so that's part of it. But the other part of it that we reported on this week is that she's alleging there was sort of this culture, and this is my word, not her word, but mm-hmm. there's sort of a culture of misogyny. The lawsuit calls it gender bias. Right, right. So essentially, she she even gives multiple examples of what she, again, alleges happened at the Wilmington Police Department over the years one of which was the fact that she says she was $30,000 underpaid under the market rate of what someone, a crime lab director, typically makes. And she says that when she tried to get pay raises from former chief Ralph Evangelist, he basically, he, he told her no. And the reasoning that she says he gave is because she would have been making more than some captains there within the police department as a civilian, which would have quote, emasculated those captains, which included now Chief Donnie Williams, as well as Assistant Chief David Euler, as you had mentioned. A lot of it comes down to, number one, what she calls the the gender discrimination or gender bias. The other thing that she says that she's accusing Chief Donnie Williams of doing is really poisoning the well for her to ever get another job. Uh, she had put him down as a reference for a job at a private company after essentially being fired and losing her job. And she says, you know, I was brought in for an interview, all this stuff. When they reached out to Chief Donnie Williams, they came back and the attitude had completely changed towards her. They said, oh, you're just after money. You're just being political. That is what she's saying that Chief Williams did. Yeah, and the last part of the lawsuit is um, this is not a gender bias based issue, mm-hmm. but she also claims that as the tide sort of turned against her, uh, following her testimony, Ben David allegedly took some actions to help turn the sheriff against her. But then, after she was not transferred, after she was effectively fired, mm-hmm. after she effectively lost her position as lab director, that he sort of continued to um, blacklist her, 
uh, going after her appointment to uh, a state-level board that oversees forensic labs, even though he had recommended her appointment to the governor, I believe, back in 2012. 2012, yep. And also, Pridgen now makes a living in part as an expert witness. Mm-hmm. So she'll come and testify for forensic issues for defendants. And there's an upcoming case, actually, in which it looks like Ben David's staff, not Ben David specifically, have tried to block her from testifying as an expert witness, claiming that she uh, doesn't have the appropriate experience, which, again, I'm not a legal expert, so I won't weigh in on this, beyond saying that that is the job she did for the WPD for 10 years. Right. So, you know, you have to take everything with a grain of salt, and I will say that prosecutors are known to try and discredit expert witnesses. I mean, that's a that's a prosecutorial tactic, and that is what prosecutors are supposed to do. And uh, defense attorneys would do it to prosecutors. Exactly, too. exactly. So that's what attorneys do in court. In order to prove your case, you have to cast that reasonable doubt on the other party. So by trying to disqualify somebody as an expert witness or say that they can't testify, you know, I, I think any good attorney would trying to discredit people. Um, but again, Pridgen is kind of alleging here that that this is all targeted attacks based off her personal, you know, what she's calling that personal animosity towards her from law enforcement and prosecutors in our area. And it's not necessarily a prosecutorial tactic. We don't know what what the case is. Again, that is standard trial law 101 is you have to discredit the other party to get that reasonable doubt. So I I'm not a legal expert either. I won't say whether or not um, there's anything personal here. We reached out to Chief Williams. We reached out to Ben David. Previously, we've reached out to Sheriff McMahon. This is very, very, very common. They're not talking. Um, it's nothing new. It's uh, obviously we wish they would talk to us. Uh, but again, when you're when you're a prosecutor, you want to win cases. When you're a defense attorney, you want to re- win cases. Um, so talking to the media could be in your interest, especially for um, for high profile cases. For something like this, though, where individuals who are high ranking officials are personally named in their official and personal capacities, there is really no reason for them to want to talk to us. So I don't fault them for this. Um, it would probably be a bad move on their end if they if they did want to say, because anything they say will then become evidence used in court. And we have seen that before with uh, most recently with uh, New Hanover County Commissioner, uh, Commission Chairwoman Julie Olson Bozeman. When I was in court, they actually printed off some of my articles about uh, Commissioner Olson Bozeman uh, speaking to the press about this matter. So they said this is evidence she knew about it. And that's kind of you know, that that can be the, the silver bullet, so to speak, to, to prove your case. So talking to the media, while we love it and really appreciate it, can be detrimental to legal cases. Yep. A lot of times, as much as I would like someone to talk, if they tell me, my attorney told me not to talk to you, I'll say, well, you have a good attorney. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that's that's kind of where we are. Obviously, this is all allegations. Again, it does line up with some of the things we've heard. It does line up with some of our past reporting, but we will have to follow this through the civil courts. I'll leave you with this. Um, in the most recent filing, which we, again, reported on this week, and we'll have links to on the mm-hmm. page, uh, Prison alleges that in addition to this five-year lease for the gas chromatograph machine, 
They also, um, she had a meeting with then Deputy Chief Alex Sotelo mm-hmm. about a multi-year strategic plan for the lab. So again, more allegations at least, and we would assume in, in a civil case you would bring evidence for this, Right. that up until the moment we heard about the lab being transferred, it there was no intention of transferring it. And again, this seems from Pridgen's arguments to be part and parcel of not just getting rid of her, but it's not all about her. It's more about protecting the prosecution of these hundreds of drug cases. So that's what I think a lot of the civil case will come down to. Yeah, exactly. So we'll have to watch it as it goes through. Um, One of my favorite parts as a journalist about legal cases is once documents get submitted uh, into evidence and that discovery process really kicks off, uh, obviously, attorneys get discovery and they don't turn that over immediately as public records uh, go. But a lot of this stuff, as it moves, if it does go to trial, if the if it does not settle, um, if it goes to mediation, we might not get a, a good look at it. But chances are, if this does go to trial, we will get a lot of testimony. We'll get depositions. We'll get internal affair reporting. So it's certainly something we would end up really getting a much clearer picture, you know, three years later. Exactly. Well, that's it for now. Obviously, it's something we'll be following. Uh, Michael Pratt's investigative reporter for WECT. Thanks for being here. Yeah, of course. Thank you. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition of The Newsroom. Thanks to WHQR's own Rachel Keith and her guest, UNCW Chancellor Dr. Aswani Valetti and WECT investigative reporter Michael Pratt's. Thanks as well to our technical team, Ken Campbell and Jonathan Furnell. If you missed part of this program, you can find it at whqr.org. You can also find it as a podcast pretty much everywhere you can find podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schockman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom.